Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live and our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, firmly believe that movement should be treated as a lifestyle and not an activity. I think today's guest, Brett Jones, really exemplifies that, a lifetime mover and somebody that I found without even realizing he was right under my nose here in Pittsburgh. A big shout out and thank you to Eric Malzone for the introduction. And today's interview is a dual interview that I did with the intention of airing it both on Moving to Live and our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, because Brett is a Pittsburgher living in Pittsburgh, and he also travels, coaches, and teaches nationally and internationally. I think you'll enjoy his story and learn more about what he does with strength and conditioning and the importance of moving well and building strength. FitLab PGH and Moving to Live are back with another podcast episode. This is the first time that it is a planned episode that's going to air on both FitLab PGH and Moving to Live. This is because our guest today is a person who is in Pittsburgh, and I'm wondering how many movement people in Pittsburgh actually knows he is in Pittsburgh, but he also teaches literally internationally, and if you ask anybody who's in the know on kettlebell training and who's involved with the functional movement screen going way, way back before YouTube and Instagram were big things. His name is Brett Jones. Brett, thanks for taking time to talk to both FitLab Pittsburgh and Moving to Live. Ben, it's, uh, it's great to have the opportunity to be on the podcast. And, you know, we were chatting a little bit earlier. Like, I, I don't have a good footing in the, the fitness world in Pittsburgh just because I've, uh, I, I travel and, and don't leave my house very often. <laughs> And I suspect anybody who is listening outside of Pittsburgh who's in the movement field has probably run across your name, some people in Pittsburgh also. But if you meet somebody, and right now we're sitting here and you're wearing your Strong First instructor shirt, and you're standing in line in Starbucks and somebody says, what's Strong First? What do you do? What's your 30-second elevator spiel? So maybe they'll hire you to do something. So I would say uh, Strong First uh, is a school of strength. We teach people how to... um, 
build uh, strength, pursue, promote uh, strength, um, because strength has a greater purpose in our lives. And we use tools like the kettlebell, the barbell, and body weight to teach you how to move better and optimize your strength and performance. And we're going to get to more to that in a few minutes. We want to find out a little bit more about how we got to this point sitting in a third floor attic of an 1890s house. <laughs> One of the great things about FitLab PGH interviews is sometimes people invite us to their house and I get to see parts of the city that I might not otherwise be familiar with. Pittsburgh native, or if not a Pittsburgh native, what brought you here? So not a Pittsburgh native, uh, born and raised Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, went to school at High Point University, High Point, North Carolina. Uh, masters at uh, Clarion University in, uh, up in uh, Clarion, PA. Um, moved to Chatham, Virginia for two years, which is where I met Gray. That was 95 to 97. So Gray Cook, Functional Movement Systems. And um, went... Uh, after two years there, we moved back up to the New Bethlehem area for eight, nine years, out to San Diego for two years, back to Pittsburgh for the last 12, coming on 13 years. So it's been uh, been some back and forth, been around, um, but you know Pittsburgh certainly, um, I like to joke that why does any male move anywhere? Uh, probably has to do with his significant other. Uh, so my wife was, uh, future wife was here, so that's where I was going to be. And I'm curious, when you went to High Point University, what was your major and what was your career plan when you graduated? Well, uh, oddly enough, I went for athletic training. So I got my sports medicine degree as planned and um, worked as an athletic trainer as a grad assistant and then at uh, a military academy in Chatham, Virginia, and then made a shift in 97. I started running a hospital fitness center, and that was really my transition into the, the fitness world. And it was a hospital fitness center where we had, um, uh, we were in a PT clinic. So we transitioned a lot of folks from post rehab uh, to fitness. And in 97, that was a relatively novel thing to do. It was. It was. We had a, the, the gentleman that owned the PT clinic uh, was a pretty progressive thinker and, and was pretty ahead of the time. And the hospital was into it as well, um, just building community and things of that nature. So I worked with people who were coming off of uh, rehab from strokes, from joint replacements, from other orthopedic issues. Um, Parkinson's neurological conditions, uh, even had some amputees and people in wheelchairs. So as an athletic trainer, I felt like I could really uh, do a good job in, in uh, adjusting the exercises to fit those individuals. Um, and I didn't know how you were a personal trainer without that background. Like I, I, I was kind of thrown into this pretty intense situation and then also got to work with some of the local athletes and things of that nature. So it was uh, five years of uh, intense uh, introduction into uh, the fitness world. I know I've had the opportunity to have a couple of two day courses with uh, Dr. Shirley Sarman, yes. who's a well-known physical therapist and not as well-known mm -hmm. in the fitness or movement world. And I had her for a hip and back course a couple of years ago. I think I was the only non-physical therapist in the room. And I'm listening to her talk and I'm thinking anybody who's involved in movement should be taking this course because there's so much information, even if you're not treating patients. Correct. Yeah, she's definitely a great name uh, in the industry and somebody to uh, to look at. She's got some some really good stuff. I know her and Gray have had some conversations and, and, uh, and, and I'm familiar with her work. I'm curious... What was it that made you not pursue the traditional athletic training career, which is either I'm going to be an athletic trainer working 100 hours a week in a college setting for very little money, 
or I'm going to have maybe a little more control for a little bit more money working in a clinic, or maybe if you're fortunate enough, you get hired by a private high school. What was it that said, I'm not going to spend every Friday and Saturday covering athletic events and covering practices all day? Well, I think you just nailed it. <laughs> uh, the The first job at the military academy in, in, in uh, Chatham was uh, very intense. It was a lot, a lot of hours and uh, just kind of honestly just burned me out. And uh, so knowing that I wanted a little more life than uh, continually being on an athletic field or in a training room uh, and knowing that paperwork was the other part of the clinical uh, realm, which I'm not a fan of, um, the transition into the fitness world was, was really interesting for me because I, I could uh, certainly apply a lot of my orthopedic evaluation rehabilitation skills towards people that were coming in because um, – very few of us are garage kept single owners that were only driven to church. Uh, the rest of us have accumulated some mileage and we come in wanting to get fit, but we've got an achy and owie, a pre existing thing. Yeah, I injured this. It still bothers me, sort of thing. Uh, and I think most people would resonate with the idea that, uh, you know, a lot of us have started fitness routines only to stop because something ends up aching. We got a, a, a knee that hurts, a shoulder that hurts, whatever the case may be. Um, so just just being able to, to apply that uh, was uh, really, really good. And then my early contacts with both Pavel and Gray Cook led to this progression into traveling and teaching and DVDs and all this other stuff that, that uh, occurred over the years. And I know we've got some people listening in Pittsburgh who are not movement people or <clears throat> You could just briefly describe who is Pavel and who is Gray Cook. I know we'll cover them both more in a few minutes, and I'm familiar with them, and many of the movement people are, but somebody in Pittsburgh who just likes to go to the gym may not know who those names are, and they should. Well, if, uh, if you're using a kettlebell today, you can thank Pavel, because in the, in the uh, late uh, 1990s, early 2000s, he started kettlebell training, the, the revival Kettlebells had been in the country previously, and uh, a little bit in the 50s, which was kind of this golden age of um, um, health and fitness, uh, more bodybuilding, uh, the, the beach muscle sort of thing. Um, but it had been here previously. So in the modern era, if you're using a kettlebell in the States, you can probably thank Pavel for that. Uh, he brought it back. Uh, I was at his second ever workshop uh, certification in February of 02, 2002. Uh, so, and then was invited to start teaching with him in April of 03. So I've been teaching with him for 16 years. I've been swinging a kettlebell for 18 plus and, uh, uh really, uh, he's, he's been an incredible mentor, opened up a lot of opportunities for me. So, uh, came out of Russia, former military, um, was actually personal training and doing stuff in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area. And then was uh, somebody discovered him and got him on some products and books and it just blew up from there. Uh, Gray Cook is a physical therapist and uh, innovator of the functional movement systems, which includes both the functional movement screen and the SFMA or selective functional movement assessment for clinicians and the healthcare providers. Um, and that uh, is something that when I worked with Gray from 95 to 97, that was kind of in gestation. They were working on it behind the scenes. And then I went to the first FMS workshop ever, which was in 99. Um, 
So I, I was very fortunate um, to be an early adopter within both of those things and to be just in the right place, right time, and to uh, take that opportunity and then to be given opportunity by those individuals. I'm curious how you made the decision to explore kettlebells because when you're describing the time that you went into the fitness field, that was kind of the golden age of machines and circuit training. It was a little bit after Nautilus, but you still had the machines and the idea that for most fitness facilities, if it wasn't the quote unquote meathead gym, where you paid 20 bucks a month and there was uh, maybe a water fountain in the corner, but most fitness facilities was a stream of machines or a row of machines, couple rows, maybe some dumbbells. And rarely, if ever, ever would you see a, an Olympic platform or would you see a squat rack? So was your facility different from that or how did you figure out or explore kettlebells? So I was uh, right around, and I'm trying to remember the exact time frame. It was 99 or 2000. I went to one of the first perform better, learn by doing seminars. And uh, Juan Carlos Santana and Diane Vivas were up on stage. And Juan Carlos said something. And, and up to this point, I'm a hit Jedi. I am a one set to failure machine based guy. And I've been, and use the term guy, but uh, I've been that guy. I've been the functional training guy, the body weight guy, the power lifting guy, the kettlebell guy. The If you can pick a pigeonhole, I stuck myself in that pigeonhole. I like to say you've drank the Kool-Aid from multiple sources. Yes. Got the t-shirt, cut the sleeves off, mow grass in it. So um, as you accumulate uh, your knowledge and you dive down different rabbit holes, a natural thing to do is to really – and I, I, I dive in. When I, when I get interested in something, I really try to, to take a little bit deeper dive than just uh, the, the cursory look. So uh, I'm at this workshop, um, and I'm a hit Jedi, one set to failure, machine-based. <clears throat> and Juan Carlos says, muscles are dumb. They only do what the neurological system tells them to do. And I'm sitting there in the, in the crowd going, yeah, but yeah, he's right. And so the, there was kind of this shift uh, in my mindset. And a friend of mine had recommended one of Pavel's first books, which was Power to the People, which was an ultra minimalist strength routine using uh, the deadlift and a barbell side press. And uh, I bought in. And then the marketing machine kicked in and I kept hearing about kettlebells, kettlebells, the next book, the Russian kettlebell challenge. And uh, so I got the book, true story, um, which will sound weird to somebody who's been taking the deep dive and working with Pavel for the last 16 years is I got this book, I read it and I put it in the drawer because I looked at it and I'm like, ah, I can do all that stuff with a dumbbell and I, I put it in the drawer. Eh, you know, back of my mind, it's still still working on me. So I pull it back out, and uh, he, he had some things in back. And so I, I hooked up a 50-pound dumbbell and decided to try some snatches. I knew how to do a dumbbell snatch, so I just decided to try a couple of the routines that he had for kettlebell snatches with a 50-pound dumbbell. Um, when the EMS revived me, I decided, and that's a joke, by the way, for, for everybody listening, that is a 100% joke. Um, but it was, it was eye opening to use these routines. And I thought, you know what, I need to go get some training in this. And so I had missed my opportunity to be at the first workshop in October of 01, but I did get my first kettlebell late in 01. 
And um, I'm curious at that time, there wasn't really Amazon and Google. Where did you find your first kettlebell? And if you, do you remember what was the shipping cost to get a, say a 30 kilogram kettlebell shipped to your house? So uh, that first kettlebell is actually sitting right behind you. Um, I painted it yellow at one point so that it would show up better in a photo. Um, and so that is a ever how many year old, uh, kettlebell that still looks pretty much brand new, uh, because they're simply hunks of iron that certainly, uh, I could gift these, uh, to, uh, family members, um, that it was from Dragon Door, uh, which was the company that was, uh, Pavel's publisher and, and who he was working with at that mm-hmm. time. And then, um, it was a gift. So I don't know what the shipping cost was, but it was significant. So, and I, I recently got a 48 kilo bell, uh, from perform better and, uh, I knew it was coming and I saw the UPS truck drive up. And so I went out, uh, to help the, the driver. And what I heard as I approached the truck was because he wasn't even picking it up. He was literally just rolling it on the floor of the truck to get it to the edge. And I'm like, uh, you mind if I take that? <laughs> so it's uh, definitely we have many stories in the kettlebell community of uh, the, the shipping experiences and, and drivers dropping stuff off going, what is wrong with you people? Like, what the heck are you ordering? I'll let you in on a little secret if you're looking for more kettlebells, although I probably shouldn't. I haunt Craigslist. Mm. And I've got my most recent ones by meeting a gentleman in the parking lot of the busy bee <laughs> to exchange for a two kettlebells so you can sometimes save on the shipping cost 100 I, I think you hit the nail on the head the fact that they will last forever i'm sure mine are not as old as yours i leave some sitting out on my patio that i've actually sprayed with plasticized paint other than the handle so that they're out basically for the last three or four years yeah, they're they're really amazing. I mean, if you if you break a kettlebell, you've done something special. Um, and I have mine have populated the upstairs office here uh, to a to a good degree. But uh, yeah, they're they're forever tools. And I've been doing primarily kettlebell training for the last eighteen years. And I'm curious. We'll take a, a little bit of a step back here. We're talking with Brett Jones, stronger, strong first, involved in kettlebell training, gray cook, and functional movement training. I'm curious about what's kept you in the field so long and doing trainings that require you to actually do something rather than stand up there and flash through probably when you started uh, overhead projector and now into PowerPoint because we were chatting a little bit before recording and the life of the person who's making a living as a fitness person slash personal trainer is relatively short because you have to hump it because you're basically getting paid per client or you can only work X number of hours a week if you're in a facility where you're a manager. Clearly, you've transitioned from that uh, community hospital-based fitness where you're doing a lot of traveling, which gives you more opportunities. What is it that's allowed you to stay active and be able to still demonstrate the various kettlebell activities uh, almost 20 years after you started? Well, it's... uh I, I will say that the, the the techniques, the principles, the things that we teach are that good. It is uh, we we fully believe in, in health and uh, you know the the mission of what you're doing to educate people to move and move well. And if we break down like the the, the logo for FMS, move well, move often, 
if you drill down on that a little bit, it means move well enough to be able to adapt in a positive fashion to what you're doing. And if you start exercising and you get, you know, an achy, an owie, a hurt, and you have to stop, you're not moving well enough to be able to adapt in a positive fashion. Now, that could be a programming issue. There's, there's many different things that we could drill down on there. But, you know, we uh, both systems fully uh, believe, and I, I may, may be the first person to come up with this and probably not because we're all uh, thieves of uh, information. But uh, the only place fitness comes before health is in the dictionary. Um, if you, and that's why we want to move and, and be fit. We want to be healthy. And so, um, not that I haven't had my challenges over those, over those 18 years. Um, I've accumulated seven or eight surgeries. I had a pulmonary embolism. I've had a melanoma. I've had, you know, various things that have happened. I, I had an alphabus one laminectomy back in 03. Scar tissue over the last couple of years started to give me some very interesting nerve uh, sensations, uh, which required a little bit of treatment. Um, but the tool I've never, and I'm going to say this with all honesty, I've never hurt myself with a kettlebell. I have rehabbed myself and come back from various things uh, with the kettlebell. You know, I've had three different abdominal surgeries. I didn't ask for any of those. Like I didn't ask to have a left angle hernia. I didn't ask to have an appendectomy. Didn't ask for one of those surgical sites not to heal back right and have a ventral hernia that I had to have repaired. Like, you know, these things were you just you live a life, you accumulate some mileage. And um, I've always been able to uh, successfully come back and uh, post back surgery. I went on to uh, power lift and uh, in the raw categories, which means belt only, um, had a, a best squat of 518, deadlift of 573. That's in competition. That's not in, in the gym. That's uh, AAU uh, Worlds uh, back in 07. So I've, uh, I've come back from a variety of things and, and gone on to use the principles, the things that we teach, uh, set that movement baseline, we move well enough to adapt in a positive fashion, and then properly program and apply the tools. And I've had uh, pretty good success. I'm curious if growing up, were you an active kid growing up, which contributes to you still staying active umpteen decades later? Uh, I would say two things. Uh, I had a fantastic example in my father. Uh, my father, um, 40 well, some odd years ago, uh, went from a three pack a day smoker to running three to five days a week and taking on a fitness lifestyle where he would get up. Um, four in the morning, drive to the club, work out, come home, get ready for work, come back at six, that sort of thing. What drove him to do that? Um, simply being unhappy with, with where he was. He wanted to quit smoking and he knew that exercise could be a, a good part of that. And, um, he pursued it. And, uh, to this day, he's, uh, in his early seventies now, um, still gets to the club two to three days a week, goes on hikes on the weekend. Um, so I, I had a had a really good example from my father, and then I wrestled in high school, which gave me. I'm curious, have you taught your dad any kettlebell exercises? You know, I have not. Um, speaking of accumulated mileage, he has accumulated mileage, and I have clients who do not touch kettlebells. Um, that's part of that. Uh, I square pegs don't belong in round holes, so. I, I select the modalities, the information that's going to make uh, the biggest difference to the person I'm working with, and I don't try to apply everything to everyone. And uh, Dad has a few things going on that just make it better for him to uh, maintain his current fitness routine. 
and wrestling in high school. Did you continue that in college or were you active in college at all? I know as an athletic training student, having been one myself, you have to make a conscious choice to do that because it's very easy to just say, I'm going to fall into the college experience. Uh, yes to all of the above. Um, I did not continue with wrestling because I wasn't that good. <laughs> so I was, a, I was a little bit of a strong kid and, and certainly did well uh, in certain aspects, but it, it wasn't anything that was going to take me into college and um, had actually had a back injury wrestling in high school that uh, it was just kind of one of those uh, better off to move on sort of things. And while I did enjoy working out and doing things like that, I uh, my college experience was in uh, the old – we were an internship program for the first three years. And so then, either 1,800 or 2,400 hours of observation depending – or experience, clinical experience depending on when you were in the internship. Yes, and I actually accumulated over 3,000 in, in the time that I was there. So I was, I was busy. Um, and kind of going back to the example I had from my father, my grandfather, just my family in general, you do the work. You put the hours in. And athletic training, as you know, first to leave, I mean, first to show up, last to leave, uh, do the work, what needs done, whatever that may be. And so I brought that with me. Uh, it certainly bought into that in my college career and uh, worked a lot um, as I as I progressed there. And then, uh, yeah, I um, put in a lot of hours uh, with the uh, with the athletic training and uh, lost my way from a fitness standpoint, um, which is unfortunately fairly common in that field. Yes, yes, because you're and and it, it, there's an old joke: the mechanic's car gets fixed last, and um, you kind of you begin to treat yourself that way as you get into that field because you're so busy doing for others and managing the situation uh, that your your self care goes out the window. Do you think that had anything to do with your getting out of doing the athletic training and go and moving more in the fitness realm? You, at some level, you recognize that you know this is not something I can maintain long-term or do you think it was more you were looking for something different? Um, somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle, certainly lifestyle. And, and I'm still not good with work-life balance. I, I still work too much. Um, now I'm going to say that that's a secret to success. You got to, you got to put the work in, uh, but I, I may overdo it from time to time. Um, but the definitely a lifestyle aspect was, was, was a big one. Any long-term movement goals that you have now that's just like, okay, I'm approaching half a century, but I'm still moving, still fairly strong. Anything you're saying, boy, this is something I want to take on before I go to the big, uh, big guy in the sky. So my goal for this year is uh, Pavel wrote a book called Simple and Sinister, which is a minimalist kettlebell program, uh, kettlebell swings and get-ups. And he has uh, simple, a simple standard and a sinister standard. And the simple standard is a 32 kilo uh, one arm swing, 10 sets of 10 in five minutes. So 10 reps every 30 seconds for five minutes, uh, followed by one minute rest and then one get up every minute for 10 minutes. So I'm currently training for the sinister standard, which is the 48 kilo bell for the 100 swings in five minutes, 10 every 30 seconds, one minute rest, one get up every uh, minute for 10 minutes. So that's my current training right now is to achieve the sinister standard. And I know people can pull up YouTube videos or they can pull up Instagram videos and see everybody and his brother demonstrating their new PR for somebody who's listening to this, who's not really familiar with the movement and fitness field. 
how long is this training going to take before you say, okay, I think I'm going to try to take on the sinister? So it's, it's uh, interesting in that uh, I actually started training for sinister last year. Uh, and I, I, I look forward in my year and I coordinate some of my training based on what I'm going to be teaching. Like I will teach a strong first level two workshop uh, in May. And part of that is some double kettlebell drills and bent pressing. And there's our level two skills. So those will become part of my training in the weeks leading up to that event so that my demonstrations are on point and I'm, uh, I'm just ready to, to teach. So last year I took our uh, barbell certification, uh, strong first lifter SFL certification and ran uh, a, a program for eight to 12 weeks getting ready for that certification. So I don't, um, we were talking earlier about the book uh, Legacy and there's a, there's a chapter, first chapter in Legacy is called Sweep the Shed. And it's about the New Zealand All Blacks and one of the most successful sport franchises around the globe um, over the years. And after a game, you have some of the most highly paid, talented rugby professionals in the world. They go to the locker room. They talk about the game. What went well? What do we need to work on? Who's coming up next? You know, they, they do their post game. And then these team captains break out brooms and dustpans and vacuums, and they clean the locker room, leaving it better than they found it. Because no job is a small job, and no job is beneath anyone. And so um, I, I, I fully believe in that. So when I went to take our own barbell certification, I'm director of education, I certainly could have just checked that box and said, good to go. But I went, I participated, I was a student, I prepared and met the standards. And then uh, later in the year, I took our body weight certification and prepared and met the standards and treated myself as a student uh, at that event. Um, so there were kind of th two or three different phases to my training last year. The overriding goal was sinister, and it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because later in the year when I was like, okay, this is the X number of weeks, months that I'm heading towards that goal, I started to recognize that uh, I was on the wrong path. I was not, um, I, I needed to shift gears. And so I took a little bit of time in December to, I'm not going to say rehab, but just decompress, let my body catch up a little bit. And then I've, my training's been going pretty well this year uh, thus far to uh, get towards Sinister. We're talking with Brett Jones. He is the director of education for Strong First and very involved with functional movement systems. Both of the companies that you're involved with, I know that when people go and take these trainings, this is not a sit alone or sit there and listen and take notes and then go back to your facility and all of a sudden you are the quote unquote expert in your facility on whatever it is you're teaching. Was this when you were working with both of these companies, and I know you were there almost from the beginning with both of them, was this something that it was a conscious choice of saying, we're going to train movement professionals who can actually do this? And kind of as a follow-up of that, what about somebody who is a movement professional who maybe has some physical problems where they're not able to do some of the activities? So I guess the first question would be, was this a conscious choice with both companies to say, we're going to do uh, practical skill-based certifications where people can not only teach, but they can also do. 100%. Um, there's an old joke that uh, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. 
but in practice there is. And so there, we were coming out of a phase um, or the industry had shifted to a point where it was a lot of the online test or the, you know, go pay your money, take the multiple choice test, and then you're certified and whatever. Um, kettlebell training, it, you have to be able to effectively do it and demonstrate it. And so we have testing standards both for technique and for conditioning. And the conditioning standard is there to make sure you've put your time in. You've done your practice and your due diligence coming into the certification. And the certification, uh, level one certification, for example, is a three-day experience where there's six different, in addition to all of the reps that you're doing to practice the skills and the corrections and the drills that we use, uh, there are six different practice sessions plus a grad workout plus the snatch test. It is an intense three days. And we we expect that of folks. We want you coming out um, and, and people compare it to, to some very transformative experiences that they've had. It's a, it's a, it is an intense setting quickly to your question on the medical end of things. We do provide medical exemptions where needed. If you have a history with your shoulder where you can't go overhead, we, we can work with that. Um, we have our one day courses that do not require testing and they're not certifications, but they're one day courses where you pick up a lot of information and education on the, on our various tools. Within the FMS end of things, um, the light bulb moments when personal trainers, physical therapists, PTs, chiros, um, don't know why I said physical therapist and PT. Uh, personal I trainer? To, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to avoid that one. But, you know, fitness folks, personal trainers, all that stuff. Um, the, the light bulb moments when you screen them and they realize what they can't do, what they assume, and I – I like to refer to it as the matrix effect that uh, we all see ourselves as this residual self image basically. And, and if you've seen the matrix, you know, the moment I'm talking about when they dropping back in the program and Morpheus explains, ah, this is look at yourself. This is your residual self image. We pretty much freeze frame ourselves at our, what we considered our best uh, moment. And that's our residual self-image. We see ourselves still capable of X, Y, and Z because that's what we were once able to do. So shining a light on the fact of you know where you are and a positive direction of where we can take you uh, is really what was one of the goals. And we want practitioners that have had that experience and so they can share that positive experience and move forward with their clients and students. It's interesting as you say that. I know that uh, we talked a little bit. I had herniated a disc. And I had become quite deconditioned because of multiple eye surgeries over the previous years. Mm. And a friend and colleague of both of us, Dr. Pete Thomas, when I went to see him for some post-rehab work, said, you know, you have to remember you're not at that level. And rather than saying, I can't do this or trying to do this and getting hurt, back it off and build it, build it up. And although intellectually I could articulate that to other people, it had never occurred to me. And when he said that, I remember the light bulb going on. It's like, oh. Well, I'm not capable of going out and riding 45 or 50 miles. No wonder my back hurts when I try to do it. And I took literally eight or nine months to get back to the ability to be able to do that. And I can still remember riding down the road and coming to a hill and thinking, I don't know if I can do that. Whereas after getting better conditioned and taking those step-by-steps, the image of what I was is now the image of what I am. And it was an eye-opening experience and I'm appreciative of somebody pointing it out to me because sometimes the mirror is dark when you're looking in the mirror. 
Hundred uh, percent rationalization and opposable thumbs. Uh, that's pretty much what identifies us as humans. Um, and it, it is it's a it's a powerful lesson. I've had to do it multiple times of stepping back, kind of quote starting over. Um, I I refer to it all the time when I'm working with personal trainers, fitness folks, or rehab folks. I like to say, meet the person you're working with where they are. Um, I'm not going to come get you. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those guys that's, I'm not the motivator. Like, I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to scream. I'm good. Like, if you want to do this, cool. Come along for the ride. So I'll meet you where you are. And that means a good needs assessment. That means a good screen, blah, blah, blah. You'll be amazed where you can take yourself and others if you'll just meet them where they are. And I think one of the trends right now in the fitness world is this aspirational thing. Like there are these fitness folks who they, they want to be aspirational. They're trying to set this image or this thing that they think people will aspire to. Um, I personally do not need that. Um, it actually somewhat irritates me. Um, so I, I think meeting people where they are um, and doing a good job of bringing them where, you, where they want to be really much better direction. I know this is somewhat controversial for people and we've talked about this uh, before we started recording. These are both podcasts that believe movement should be treated as a lifestyle. People who are not active recognize that they need to. How do they find somebody who's qualified to teach them? Because for you and and, and uh, me, you know, it's literally decades where it's natural for us to move. We try to find different ways to move and basically our bachelor's and master's degrees were all around how to make yourself move better and understand what the body does. And what we deem is completely normal. And we could probably sit here and talk about the Krebs cycle. Neither of us wants to do that. Please. Somebody who is looking at Christmas time just passed. We're doing this in late January and they're going, you know, I set this new year's resolution, but I didn't really do it, but I need to do something, but I don't know where to go. So how do you find somebody who's qualified? Because I suspect we could get on the internet and probably find 15 or 20, we'll just call them personal trainer or uh, fitness certifications. And then if you get into specific exercises, kettlebells, suspension training, um, weighted barbells, dumbbells, et cetera, there are literally thousands of certifications. So how does somebody figure out from your experience if somebody asks you, how do you find somebody who's qualified to teach you to move? So I, I, and I'm going to be, uh, this will be one of my, uh, violently self-serving moments. Uh, I'm going to say an FMS and a strong first professional, uh, have checked some boxes. Um, now I would add to that, uh, I like kind of the big four in my mind, the, the big four and there's others, there's ISSA, but the big four in my mind are ACE, NSCA, NASM and, uh, ACSM. And those are a, if you guys aren't familiar, that's American Council on Exercise, uh, National Strength Conditioning Association, National Academy of Sports Medicine, American College of Sports Medicine, um, ISSA is uh, International Sports Science Association, and 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 there's there's a few others that are on that kind of top tier. You can look for an NCCA accredited certification. So that combination um, is a at least an indicator that somebody is not treating this as a hobby. Somebody is treating this as a vocation. And they are serious about being a professional and doing their continuing education. So that's a starting point. And I think I want to interrupt just a little bit. I interviewed uh, Brian Sutton, who works for NASM, and he actually said the same thing. 
if you're looking for a starting point, those four big certifications, one of those four. And then I want to hit on something that you mentioned because I've said this before and I always have to add an explanation. The fitness or the movement field is a vocation. That's not a bad thing. If you can kind of explain how you came up with that terminology and what you mean by it, I suspect you and I are thinking the same way on it. Well, I, I am... Um and, and we, we, you mentioned this earlier, and this is something that I've said on so many occasions. When you take on the responsibility of training someone, their life is in your hand, in your hands. You can do the wrong thing. Um, sudden death during exercise is a real thing. Um, somebody, somebody falling and needing a little bit of first aid is a real thing. And so when you treat this as a hobby – I like to work out, so I'm going to get paid to work out sort of a mindset. And you don't take this on as a profession and you don't begin to understand the seriousness of what we're doing. Um, medications. Do you know medications and contraindications? Do you understand when they come back with a note from their doctor that says he has a, a spondylolisthesis? Do you, you know, have you checked the box and done your due diligence in, in really treating this as a, a serious profession? Um, it, it, it is a serious thing to me. And um, while we might look at group exercise in a slightly different fashion because it's it's uh, a little bit different setting and there's some responsibility placed on the facility to make sure they're doing their due diligence on the front end to catch those people that should probably get a medical evaluation or something before they start. Um, as a personal trainer, strength coach, uh, I certainly feel that this is um, – something that uh, I think will end up with licensure. I think we'll end up with uh, actually treating this as a career. Um, my wife is an LMT massage therapist for 20 plus years and um, massage therapists went through licensure uh, a while back and um, they did that to not only protect the massage therapist, but protect the people that are receiving those services. So I think uh, there's a way to turn the corner and treat this as a serious career. Um, typical career span in the fitness world, 18 months to three years. It is a high burnout, high turnover thing. Uh, people that get in and think I'm going to make a bunch of money, ooh, get ready to grind. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of people that you talk to say, I get in it because I like to work out, and then they don't work out because they don't have time. Yes. I think what is not being said that people need to think about is when it turns the corner and becomes a profession and a mutual acquaintance of us, Eric Malzone is involved in working to help make that by teaching people to market themselves properly. That's going to be a big change for a lot of fitness facilities because a lot of them rely heavily on people who are not full-time employees. They are guest instructors, if that's the terminology, or I don't know what the terminology is, part-time it, there's been a shift uh, in the industry um, from a, both a studio uh, mindset um, and a big box gym mindset. Um, I don't know that we'll ever fully get away from people being part-time employees just because of you know, offering benefits is such an, such an expense to the, to the facility. Um, but uh, most facilities now will no longer do subcontractors. They will do employees. And there's the reasoning behind that is just greater control and a variety of tax and business reasons. But um, it, it is 
it's slowly turning that corner to where as the facilities are required to have employees, not just subcontractors, um, that's part of that changing of the industry to become more serious and treat it more as a career. We're talking with Brett Jones. He is involved with the Functional Movement Systems and Director of Education for Strong First. Going to kind of pick your brain a little bit because I know there's a lot of information out there. So people who maybe are movement aficionados or people who are listening to this from the FitLab PGH line and are not movement and exercise professionals, you've mentioned uh, personal trainers, you've mentioned strength coaches. In your mind and with your experience, what's the difference? Because I know one of the trends that you see if you start looking on social media, don't believe everything you see on social media, <laughs> is it's not just the gentleman or the lady who's working with uh, major college football as a strength coach who's calling themselves coach or is advertising themselves as a strength coach. It's the person who's teaching the weekend boot camp class where sometimes the programming is good, sometimes it isn't. We don't need to talk about that, but people are listening. What's the difference between a strength coach and a personal trainer? Are they one and the same or what's your definition? I think if you um, there's a uh, NSCA uh, CSCS uh, CSCC, which is a college strength coach uh, certification. Um, there are a couple of certifications out there that are supposed to be or are intended towards those individuals that are working within a sporting setting. So if I am a strength coach, the the picture in my mind that comes up is the person that's working with. Uh, that is the strength coach for a ladies basketball team at a university that uh, that's a person that is responsible for a college high school college style program. Um, the title coach is one that is easily given to a variety of individuals. Um, and, you know, I certainly had coaches in my various sports Um and the, the idea of a coach and being somebody who's uh, teaching and um, assisting in development um, is appealing from a personal training standpoint. But I think it's, it's, we're better off drawing those, those clear lines because the person that's good with 50 youth athletes in the room and managing a really good program for those youth athletes might not do such a great job with Executive Jane who has shoulder pain. Um, there's, there's really different, uh, things going on there. Both can learn from one another and both can enhance the field. But I, in my mind, if, if you call yourself a coach, I expect you to be working with some sort of team, uh, in some sort of high school, college or, or uh, club situation. If you call yourself a personal trainer, I expect you to be working with people. Um, I'd actually add a little bit on that. If you're a coach, if you're working one-on-one -on -one with endurance athletes who maybe don't have a team. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and that's uh, um, there. There are some really unique situations within running and triathletes and and things of that situation that do uh, escape the norm of uh, the the strength conditioning field. Hundred percent. I want to switch gears a little bit again and talk a little bit about uh, strong first and first functional movements systems. You mentioned you were kind of there and you met Gray Cook at the beginning. How did that come? Up? Well, first of all. What are functional movement systems for people who have never heard of this? Who are they for? So functional movement systems has two branches. Uh, we have a functional movement screen, which is like an entrance uh, 
test. And I don't want to say test because there's no pass fail. Uh, it's an entrance uh, evaluation for um, the person that's coming in to exercise. So again, I want to be sure that you move well enough to be able to adopt in a positive, positive fashion to the stress I'm going to place you under. We cause adaptation by imposing stress. Um, and then there's a selective functional movement assessment, which is a um, SFMA, which is an evaluation or uh, assessment diagnostic technique, really, for uh, athletic trainers, healthcare providers, athletic trainers, PTs, docs, um, so that they can use a movement-based approach in assessing an injury situation. If you And are there specific requirements, certifications, licensures for somebody to come and take either one of those classes? We'll have a, a link to what they are in the show notes. So that for the SFMA to get certified, you need to be a healthcare provider. You need to be a PT, a doctor, a Cairo, an AT. Um, Would a licensed massage therapist count as that since they also have licensure typically through a state medical board? At this time, I don't believe so. Um, I, I could be wrong on that. They make changes every now and then that they don't send it down the chain. Um, but I, I don't think we've opened that up to the, to the massage therapist. Um, we do allow a variety of professionals to uh, audit the course. You can go see because the principles are good. Um, the concept of regional inter, re, regional dependence, interdependence, and, and uh, things like that are, are good for all professionals to know. Um, for the FMS end of things, that is open to everyone. I've had uh, physical education coaches, uh, um, sport coaches. I've had uh, PTs, chiros, doctors, uh, athletic trainers, and fitness professionals in the room. So those are kind of the requirements uh, there. But the the concept, the if you have pain, you go down the SFMA rabbit hole. Um, if you have pain, you're not an FMS client because there's pain on board, and pain alters how you move. And we need to address that before we really start trying to build your fitness. And in simple terms for people who are not really familiar, the FMS is a series of specific tests to identify for lack of a better term, parts of the body that either don't move well or don't move correctly based on a set of criteria. Correct. So it's seven different movement patterns. Um, we're going to take you through and, and uh, they're very simple. And like I said, there's no pass fail. We do rate and rank. So you can score a three, two and a one or a zero. Zero means you had pain. You are back down that SFMA rabbit hole and you need to get that pain addressed. Um, three means you did what I asked. Two means you did it, but there was a little compensation. And one means you couldn't do it. We're really only concerned about the, the ones and the zeros. Like, we're just trying to make sure. And it's not, it's not a high bar, actually. Um, it, it's, it's basic, fundamental movement. And we want to make sure that you move well enough to adopt in a, adapt in a positive fashion to the stress you're placed under. I'm curious. You've been teaching this for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. What percentage of people who come in to take the FMS would you estimate are able to score a three or higher on all seven of the tests? I've never seen a 21. So the best you can score is a 21. Um, I've never seen one. Gray has only seen a handful. So, and three is not the goal. If as long as you're twos with no asymmetries, meaning, and five of the tests give us a right and a left score. So you can have a two one uh, score on some of the tests, uh, some of the screens. Um, uh, so, you know, that, uh, I've very rare that somebody walks in and now are people come in and get threes on some of the tests? Absolutely. 
Uh, but somebody that comes in and dunks a 21 on the first, first go round, I've never seen it. You ever seen anybody score on the test who comes for the uh, certification of zero across oh. the board, all seven tests? Uh, Actually, no, if they were a zero, they'd be farmed out to the, because they would have pain, they would go to the more significant one. I Anybody ever get a seven? Oh, yes. Yes. I, I actually, I had a, a, a client, uh, a student at uh, one point uh, who was post rehab and walked in the door and scored a seven. Um, ones on everything. And, which is great. We got a nice level playing field. Um, and I gave him five things to do. And uh, the way we teach within FMS and the things we do, we make sure if I give you a drill, I know it made a difference in the thing I was trying to change. I don't give you five things and hope something happens. I look for change right now. So I had found the five things that this individual needed. I, he went away for two weeks and did his work and I would observe him from time to time. And he was just a great student, great, great client. Two weeks later, he was a 14. And so that is the kind of change that we actually look for within the FMS. Um, we're just identifying things that need to be a little bit better. And we have strategies and techniques to make those things better. And so that's that's the way we address uh, we address things. Um, if you get a zero, I want to know why you got pain. Pain's not normal. You might expect it, but that doesn't mean it's normal. Like that's those are two completely different conversations. And so we want to be sure that that pain has a, a reason, uh, a name, uh, and name. Nah. Um, that's a whole other deep dark <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, cause people love to own their situations and own their pain. Um, but yeah, we want to, we want to make sure that we get medical clearance, make sure we're not dealing with anything weird. Um, and you, you've been a clinician in, in the healthcare field for long enough. You know, that you've, you've, you've heard the nightmare stories where somebody ignored something for X number of years. And by the time they get it checked, it's something really serious that they should have gotten checked years ago. So, um, yeah, we want to make sure we got a nice clear playing field. And then we can move forward. And I know we joked uh, towards the beginning of the interview about you having drank the Kool-Aid in multiple places. I think it's important to say with what the functional movement screen has done is it's not the Kool-Aid. I've actually heard uh, Greg Cook say, look, this is what we do. This is why we do it. If you want to learn it, great. If you don't want to learn it, great also. So it's not one of those things that says, man, if you're not doing the FMS, you're an idiot. It's a, here's a tool that you can possibly add to your toolbox that might help you make clients move better. hundred percent. And the, the question for fitness professionals is how are you going to get started with somebody? Like this is just a starting point. Let's just, let's just check the baseline. Let's make sure there's not any pain before I throw you under load. Let's make sure you can access these movement patterns that we're going to use in our exercises anyway. Um, and let's just keep an eye on the baseline. Be sure that the root, a good exercise routine should help you move well. And that's actually kind of one of the things like we've reached a point uh, when you look at the old systems and, and I'm going back to even the Greeks and, and some very old, uh, uh, most of what we do for training either comes from a military or quote gymnastic style of training and gymnastic style of training, not meaning competitive gymnastics, but uh, this, this uh, they were turned gymnastic style of training uh, by the Swiss, uh, the, uh, sorry, Swedish uh, system, uh, PH Ling, who developed massage Swedish. If you've ever had a Swedish massage, you can thank PH Ling. Um, and he was a member or taught this, uh, Swedish gymnastics program and it actually became physical therapy. 
that was a more of a rehabilitative uh, arm of this gymnastic style of training. Whereas if you look at the Germans and the Turnverein system, uh, you have more of a physical training system that was meant to build, build soldiers because uh, traditional training systems were based on martial, uh, restorative, and pedagogical. And martial was either training a soldier or training your ability to respond appropriately to aggression. Uh, restorative were techniques meant to bring you back to healthy. Um, and pedagogical was the body of knowledge that supported that system. Um, fitness is our martial art. We've, we've turned fitness into a goal in and of itself. Um, the pommel horse in gymnastics was actually a tool initially to help soldiers learn to fight on horseback. It had nothing to do with competitive gymnastics and, and some of the tricks that, and very impressive, amazing things that they do now. Um, so kind of a long winded response, but I, I get, I get started on those and I get a little passionate about it because there's, there is this deep history, uh, to what we do. Um, and I, th I think it's fascinating. Everybody borrows from somebody else, whether they like it or not. Um, uh, whenever somebody says I invented something, I will pull up a book from 1569 de arte gymnastica by Mercury Alice. Um, and in there is, Dumbbell training, medicine ball training, single leg training, body weight, uh, all all of the things. And this was published in 1569. And you can go back to the Greeks and they were probably all doing it back then. I know one of the hot things in movement and fitness now are Indian clubs and maces. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first uh, decided I was going to try a little Indian club four or five years ago and pulled some very good uh, YouTube videos up. I think a couple of them were of you. And happened to mention to my dad, who's in his 80s, he goes, oh, yeah, I remember uh, soldiers doing that in, in World War One and uh, shortly before Korea. 100%. Or, excuse me, World War Two. I don't want to age him too much. <laughs> the, they were part of the uh, Army Physical Training Manual until the late 80s. They actually, and they, they, so they have been in there for a significant period of time. Um, clubs are something that have a 5,000-plus year history. Uh, the traditional name was Indian War Clubs. They were a martial component to uh, some of the training systems coming out of India. So when we say Indian War Clubs, we're not saying Native American. It's it's in from India, and um, they're they have a, a, a tremendous history. And and I use them still. Um, I do enough heavy stuff, like I especially right now training for sinister and, and this is the some of the training i'm doing i need light restorative fast um fun kind of a moving meditation as somebody who spends a lot of time on the computer i know there's nothing like going in the backyard and spending 10 or 15 minutes swinging a light one pound set of indian clubs all of a sudden that hunched over computer system goes away i've actually got a client that i work with who bought his own pair he does a fair amount of traveling and if he drives to a job site or something, if he's away from where people don't see him, he'll swing the Indian clubs there or in his hotel room to avoid that forward head flexed position that we all like to get into. Awesome. Uh, and they are. Obviously, TSA does not like them. You're not going to be able to carry them on. Um, you could check them. But you're not going to be able to carry them on. Uh, but they are. Uh, that, that's been a really nice uh, tool. Um, and I'm curious with the uh, FMS system, how did you get involved? I mean, you were in the right place at the right time to meet Gray Cook, but how did you basically stick your head in the rabbit hole and say, hey, this is pretty cool. Can I come along for the ride and, and help with this? So I had left Chatham in 97 and really lost touch with Gray. 2003 or four, I put out a video, Kettlebell Basics for Strength Coaches, Personal Trainers. Uh, Gray got that video. 
and said, that can't be the fanny pack wearing athletic trainer uh, <laughs> from Hargrave. Um, so, and that, that's a, all, all athletic trainers just, just spit coffee out because uh, that's, uh, that's, we're definitely known for that. Um, so we got back in touch. Um, he had gotten interested in kettlebell training, what Pavel was doing. Um, I certainly had kind of continued that movement based approach and brought some of that to the, the techniques and things we were doing within strong first. And, um, and we got together and uh, led to the development of FMS level two, uh, the secrets of DVD series and really progressing the corrective exercise uh, curriculum within uh, functional movement. And then also uh, curious about your involvement and how you got involved with strong first, you mentioned you went to the second ever kettlebell training class by Pavel in the US. Yes. And then clearly you did something that made him say, hey, this is somebody that probably has something going on that could be beneficial for other people. How did that go about? Uh, so I was there in uh, February of 02. And then in March of 03, I decided to go to the Arnold Fitness Classic. And this is back in the RKC days and working with Dragon Door. And, and uh, they had a booth at the Arnold Fitness Classic. So my ex uh, and I went to uh, the convention center, took 45 minutes to get through the door to the booth. And they were like three doors down. It was, it's so packed. If you've ever been, it's just a madhouse. Um, while we were there, um, I hopped right in to helping answer questions and coach people. And um, we had this at the time, it was a 40 kilo military press challenge. Um, and if you could press it, you got an ebook, you know, it was one of those, one of those things you do at trade shows. And, uh, so I took over and started doing these things. And, uh, Pavel invited me to become an instructor, uh, uh, at dinner that night and then have just progressed from there. And you've done a great job of describing what the FMS is about and the certifications and the classes. What about uh, Strong First? What do they offer? I mean, obviously kettlebell training, but from what you've said, it's a little bit more than that. Somebody's listening to this and they're like, man, I'm not so much interested in the FMS, although I think you've made a good case for why anybody involved with movement should at least have a good basic knowledge of that or something similar to that, some way to kind of as a uh, calibration for your athletes or for your clients. Yes. What about Strong First? So Strong First offers uh, both courses, which are one-day uh, experiences for you, the individual, to get your form tuned up and learn our principles and techniques uh, in the barbell, body weight, and kettlebell training. And by barbell, are we talking bench press or everything? Uh, for the one-day course, we do the military press, um, a uh, squat, and uh, deadlift. And I'm not going to say anything. Uh, for the uh, for the body weight section, we we give progressions towards uh, one arm push up, uh, single leg squat, pull ups, things of that nature. Within the kettlebell uh, course, we uh, look at the swing, the get up, military press, and goblet squat. So foundational movements, and then the certifications are uh, intensive experiences that are meant to turn out instructors. So the, the goal of the weekend is to not only, A, get the individual's form up to strong first standards, make sure they understand our techniques and our principles, but to be sure they can then coach that. So the weekend is intensive on working within their teams to coach each other, to spot the right thing that needs to be changed, get selecting the right tool to make that change, and really building instructors that can then take those techniques home and, and use them effectively with their, with their students.
Strong first, we, we refer, we don't, uh, we don't say we have clients, we have students, uh, very similar to like a martial arts school. Uh, we do refer to ourselves as a school of strength. We have a code of conduct. We, um, uh, we hold ourselves to a little bit higher standards uh, because we believe the mission of Strong First is to pursue, promote, and practice strength because we believe strength has a greater purpose. And you can see that in a variety of ways. That could be somebody rehabbing from an injury, somebody dealing with a major illness. That could be an athlete accomplishing something. We, we, we believe strength is a uh, an overriding principle uh, and um Master quality. If you look at Metviev's quote, uh, that uh, strength is the the master quality upon which all other physical qualities are built. I'm curious. I know that uh, many fitness facilities like to offer kettlebell classes. Is there something in Strong First that you talk about this as far as a recommended max number of clients or customers in a class? That is a that is a very moving target. Um, I was part of one of the first kettlebell studios in the nation in San Diego called Iron Core back in 2004 2000 to 2006. And uh, we would have five people sign up online and 15 to 17 people show up for class. And when you're a struggling studio, you're not turning people away. You go ahead and make the class work. And so there are effective techniques to work with a variety of individuals. Of course, space is uh, a primary concern. Can you safely get everybody in this space and perform these exercises? Uh, some kettlebell drills take a little bit of a footprint to, to do safely. Um, so it's, it's really dependent on their space and their experience as an instructor. And then, <clears throat> pardon me, within the group fitness field, it's very interesting because you have uh, the ideal situation where um, people sign up to participate in classes and they actually have to go through uh, some sort of screening process or learning process. Uh, even at this studio in 2004, uh, we would bring people in. If you wanted to sign up, you had to show up for a Saturday two to three hour session where we looked at how you moved. We taught you the basic techniques so that first time in class, you're not learning how to deadlift a kettlebell or do a getup. Uh, so that's the ideal world where you've kind of pre-screened people. You, you can communicate with that instructor and say, Hey, uh, Bob or Judy's coming in and watch out for this. We found this in their email. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. The, um, the less ideal situation is where, it's a consistent group. The, the same five to 10 people are showing up for their 530 class every night. And so you can progress those people in a different way. And the thing that happens most often is the class where you don't know who's coming in the door. You're just going to get five to 10 people. Could be their first class, could be their hundredth class. You just don't know who's walking through the door. That becomes very challenging as an instructor. And the skill of an instructor to quickly screen the room spot somebody that might be doing something not great and offer a regression. Hey, swings are looking a little bit off today. Do me a favor and just deadlift for this segment. And you just, you just make a quick change and make sure that that individual still gets their session. They're still part of the class, but you, you're able to progress and regress one to two, three steps, any drill you select for your class um, so that you safely work with those folks going to ask a question that I suspect will be a hot button with you because I have, through my experiences, given my age and also just uh, 
looking around and being curious there, it's not uncommon to walk into a facility that has kettlebells and the heaviest kettlebell is 15 pounds or <laughs> I know Pavel is, Pavel's kettlebells are in kilograms. Comments on that. I know I'm putting you on the spot and if you don't want to say it, I'll edit this out. Well, you know, for a lot of facilities, um, it's, a, it's a safety thing. They may not have instructors and people that are skilled uh, in teaching it. Um, they want to simply be able to say, we have kettlebells. Um, and so they buy some light ones, uh, knowing that there's just reduced, we're going to call it risk, uh, in having those light kettlebells. So in some cases, it's a really good decision by the facility. They don't have the professionals uh, who are skilled in teaching that uh, kettlebell techniques and tools. So there's times where I'm like, good decision. Like that, that's, that's exactly what you should have done. Um, hopefully that's a facility that maybe it generates some interest and they look towards getting a kettlebell instructor uh, and somebody that can come in and, and really build a program, uh, around that. Um, we, we have a joke about our SFL standards, uh, our strong first lifter standards, and you can look those up on strongfirst.com and, and look at the SFL. Uh, Pavel has a joke that if you can meet these standards and it's a two times body weight deadlift and a couple other things. Um, but he has a joke that, uh, the strong first, the, SFL standards don't mean you're strong, just means you're not weak. And so we, we expect um, people to build strength. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing for folks because people perceive weights differently than real life. Like people will lug around their 30 pound kid, but be afraid to pick up more than a 10 pound dumbbell. Like there's, there's a, there's a disconnect there. Um, you're throwing around, you, you love to garden. So you're picking up, 25 to 50 pound bags of whatever to, to garden and, and, and do whatever with. But again, a 25 pound dumbbell is, is, is frightening. So obviously a skilled instructor building strength uh, with the proper techniques and, and principles can take you uh, to building uh, much higher levels of strength. Somebody's listening to this with uh, strong first and the kettlebell training, the one day courses. Mm -hmm. We've talked a fair amount about various fitness and movement facilities. I'm sitting here with you in your office and you've got six or seven kettlebells. <laughs> and I suspect that you don't always go to a facility that sometimes your workout takes place here on the third floor. Your wife and kids may say, Hey, stop dad. You're banging the kettlebell too hard, <laughs> but it has the unique ability that with two or three kettlebells, uh, the weight or mass, depending on the person, you can get a pretty good full body workout. Would one of these one day strong first classes be good for somebody who says, man, I want to learn more about this and I want to be able to do it at home because I'd rather spend whatever the cost is for this rather than the cost of a gym membership every month. hundred percent. And, uh, it, this, what I'm about to say is not sad, but I have trained on my own primarily for the last 16 to 18 years. Um, part of that is my travel schedule and back and forth. And, you know, just the fact that I could have one or two kettlebells at home and get these, you know, really accomplished great results. Um, even when I was powerlifting, like a lot of people didn't, I just was training at odd times. I've always had a schedule where I could train not at the typical times and, and do my own thing. Um, I fully believe that kettlebell training can be a standalone tool now. Just like anything else, I'm usually happy with uh, pizza, but adding a salad is also good, right? So, you know, it's not that I want to eat pizza forever, but it's I enjoy pizza. I can do that pretty regularly. 
but it's better and life is better with a salad and some other stuff involved. So kettlebell training is the same way. I think it forms a tremendous foundation for a fitness practice. And then having 12 to 24 weeks out of a year where you specialize more in barbell can be a tremendous way to build strength. Having a 12 week period where you specialize more in body weight, great way to hit a different angle on your strength. Maybe you have a, a hike, a vacation coming up, the Machu Picchu or whatever, where you're going to be doing some hiking and climbing. You, you want to be able to get out and do that. So my, my kettlebell practice supports my life. Um, I like to hike. So I stay fit so that I can go hike. I stay fit so that I can go teach. Um, so it's, I, I fully believe that, uh, I've all, always looked at it as kind of the apartment dweller solution that, uh, you can, you can have a couple of bells and a little bit of space and really get amazing things done. We're talking with Brett Jones. He is the director of education for strong first and an advisory board member for functional movement systems. I'm curious, we've alluded to a little bit in the recording and also talked about it prior to recording the fact that you do a hell of a lot of traveling for your teaching. I do. How do you prioritize the movement? Because having done a fair amount of traveling, not close to you, I know that sometimes, especially when you're going internationally or across the country to California and you land, the last thing you want to do is some sort of movement. How do you manage to make that a priority? Because it's really easy to say, now nah, I'm just going to go have a, a beer or I'm just going to go to bed. Through uh, FMS, uh, a group called Ground Force Method, which teaches uh, body weight uh, movement uh, skill uh, and uh, strong first, uh, both our joint mobility and relaxation techniques. I have a wide variety of things that I need no equipment for that I can, uh, I remember landing and I was teaching in Amsterdam and um, I remember landing and going to the room and, and you know, doing a movement practice uh, right there in, in a it was actually a pretty good sized room for, for Europe um, and doing a, a movement practice uh, to shake off the, the trip. I'm also very fortunate in that usually I'm going to teach something physical where I am going to be demonstrating. I'm going to be moving anyway. Um, so that helps to a certain degree because <laughs> I'm also demonstrating how to not do things. And so, um, it's, it's a wide variety of things that I'm doing. And then it's usually 10 hours a day of teaching. And, uh, so there's a lot of mental and physical, uh, work that goes into my teaching days. And so, um, that, that's, that's how I do it. I, I, I can get up in the morning, do a little 15 minute movement practice, boom, ready for my day. Um, then I'm going to go do something typically pretty physical for the rest of the day and then hit repeat for the next day. I'm curious and I'm asking this because I've got a good friend in the industry who shall remain nameless who managed to fracture his foot while demonstrating a drill at a training that he was done. And essentially, not the smartest thing, but he sucked it up and finished the day. I'm curious, have you ever injured yourself while doing some of the teaching and realized as you did it, oh crap, this is going to be a rough day or a couple of days? I have never injured myself in the process of teaching. However, I have had days where um, I've had nerve pain from that scar tissue and stuff uh, from from uh, from my back. Um, I had I have a situation with my right knee where I've got uh, sixth grade. I tore my MCL and then I had a, a cartilage tear, and so it it'll swell up and get irritated from time to time. So have I gone into certain uh, workshops either getting flared up from the travel uh, because. I, you spend enough time on an airplane, you realize just how 
not good uh, those things are for your health. And uh, so, you know, I've gone into situations, and what's really amazing is I've gone in to teach uh, kettlebell training or FMS, and I feel better by the time the day is done. Our, our techniques, our principles, the things we're doing are actually very effective for having a great movement practice and movement lifestyle. I think that's a great final statement to really bring home FitLab PGH and moving to live movement. It's a lifestyle, not just an activity. Brad, I want to thank you for opening up your house and taking time to talk to me. 100%. Ben, it's been great. Look forward to future opportunities. Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore MOV number two LIV. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you.